Paul to the Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. What we'll see Paul talking about this morning is the mind of Christ versus the philosophy of men. A really important thing for our current generation and our current times. The mind of Christ versus the philosophy of men. Colossians 2, 6 through 8. I'm reading this morning out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The mind of Christ versus the philosophy of men. Paul taught the church at Colossae concerning the resurrection, concerning the resurrection of Jesus, and that their union with Jesus was possible because of their reconciliation with God the Father, uh, that their new lives were in Christ himself. Paul went on to say that Jesus' deity and his preeminence in all things was given by direct validation from God because it was God the Father who raised him from the dead. He made it clear that he was teaching them according to the Spirit, according to God, according to Christ, and not according to the philosophy of men. Paul stated that false philosophy is the tradition of men according to the principles of the world rather than the principles of Christ, which of course, is Christ's deity and complete rule and authority over all things, evidenced by his resurrection. The truth for us this morning is that like the believers in Colossae and Laodicea, the church has been infiltrated by men who are not teaching according to the Spirit like Paul was. I recently read a blog by the Christian author and theologian Ken Ham, you may be familiar with him if you're familiar with the ministry Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and the Ark, I think, is in Kentucky that he built. This is what he wrote in his blog. Start quote. He says, as we look around at the shambles of Western civilization, he starts here with the world. He's not talking about the church yet. We look around at the shambles of Western civilization. A question seems to be on everyone's mind. What happened? What happened? Many people, Christian and non-Christian, are asking that question, what happened? Why do they ask this question? In the USA in the 1700s, about 70 to 80% of the population attended church. But by 2010, 56% of what's called the greatest generation, which is those born before 1928, attended church. But now only about 18% of millennials do. And this is from Religion Among Millennials, a Pew Forum from February 2010. In 2021, Generation Z church attendance was down to a single digit, less than 9%. Also, we can observe the changing worldview in these cultures from a more Christianized one. And what he's talking about is it was in the past we were permeated with a Judeo-Christian ethic that was based on the Bible. In the past, to a very secularized, atheistic worldview of moral relativism in our present day. For instance, in America... 78% of the greatest generation believed same-sex relations were always wrong. However, in the millennial generation, this was down to 43%, and it seems Generation Z is much less than that. Similar changes have been observed in people's attitude toward abortion, euthanasia, 
and many other issues. So many people ask the question, what happened? Much of the Western world's worldview came out of the Bible. Therefore, most people believe that marriage was between one man and one woman. Homosexual behavior was wrong. And there were only two genders of human beings, male and female. So what happened? The foundation for the dominant worldview of the West was changed. Generations of kids, now particularly reflected in the younger generations of millennials and Generation Z, have been indoctrinated against the Bible. They've been indoctrinated against the Bible to believe that man's fallible word is the foundation for living. So if there's no absolute authority, then ultimately anything goes. The resulting moral relativism and the growing intolerance of Christianity is a sad reflection of this foundational change. We are seeing the symptoms of this foundational change in the cultural change from a predominant Judeo-Christian worldview to one that is permeated really in the effects of postmodernism. Anything goes. Everything's a construct. You can believe whatever you want. In Colossians, we can see this battle goes back 2,000 years. If we go back to the beginning of mankind, as recorded in Genesis, we see this battle goes back to the very first human beings created. As the wise King Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. In verses 6 through 8, Paul unapologetically gives a contrast between true instruction and empty deception so that you can be discerning by what you choose as the source for the way in which you will live your life. The contrast of true instruction versus empty deception. True instruction, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. We'll see in verses 6 and 7. And in contrast, empty deception, the elementary principles of the world, we'll see in verse 8. So the first contrast, true instruction, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, the way they received Christ takes us back to the first part of the letter. So we can do a little review here. But first, let's stay in chapter 2 for a minute. We can look at the immediate context of Paul's encouragement in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Paul is encouraging them. His encouragement is in the love of fellow believers. Our love for one another is based on our shared salvation and our understanding of the gospel. Our acceptance that the gospel is true. Our love for one another is based on our union with Christ. And Paul's loving reason for Christian ministry of encouragement for the saints is based on both realities. When we look at Paul's complete thought in the sentence of verses 1 through 3, it's clear to to see, I think it's clear to see that Paul's loving heart motive is in the pastoral ministry of these believers. And it goes out beyond just this congregation. He loves them. Paul counted on and hoped to encourage each believer to remain true to God's plan of salvation. That's the encouragement, the love of and for other believers, along with the knowledge of the saving power of Jesus. And parallel to the encouragement is the warning or the exhortation he gives in verse 4. Paul was talking about false teachers' attempt to distort to reckon fraudulently, to defraud with those that are under their sway. The warning is the manner the false teachers use, well-crafted or persuasive arguments, speech with oratory skill that, while being superficially plausible, is actually wrong. It's not the truth. The point is that it is not true. However, the delivery of the mistruth is effective. Intentional heresy or unintentional error can sway a person into believing something that is false without realizing it if the speaker uses persuasive speech. In Colossians chapter 2, really verses 2 and 3, Paul said the Colossians being held together in love for one another 
would be all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding and to the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is crystal clear because his next statement in verse 4 is the warning. And let's ask the question, Paul, why do you say this? Why do you say that the hearts of believers in Colossae and the extended area in and around Laodicea may be encouraged having been held together in love even unto all the wealth of the full treasure of understanding unto the full knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. Paul, why do you say this? I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Just listen to Paul. It's pretty clear the manner of receiving Christ was not in persuasive arguments or speech. Paired with encouragement and love, Paul also gave the exhortation. The exhortation, the warning against deceptive teaching. It's deceitful teaching. The warning against deception and teaching that causes disorder and instability in the saving faith of Jesus. And it wreaks havoc in the bonds of love within uh, the, the church, within the body of believers. The verb Paul uses in verse 6, to receive, means to gain control of or receive jurisdiction over, to take over or to receive. Outside of the New Testament, the Greek usage would include the concept of a, a mental or spiritual heritage, especially of mysteries and ceremonies that one receives by tradition. Of course, Paul is referring to the proclamation of Christ. He's not referring to the ceremonies and mysteries of tradition. He uses the word mystery, but he's referring to the proclamation of Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as the Christ. In order to see the way the Colossians received Christ more clearly, we need to go back to the first part of the letter. How did they receive Christ? Look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. This goes back to one of the fundamental three graces of Christian life. The fundamental graces of Christian life, one of them is hope, and that's what we see here. Really in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 1, Paul explained the fundamental graces of Christian life, faith, hope, and love. In 5 and 6 of chapter 1, Paul deepened his explanation of thankfulness for the Colossians' faith by giving the reason for our love for other believers. He said, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul's hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are two nuances to the kind of hope Paul is referring to in verse 5. The first kind of hope is the idea of looking forward to something with the implication of confidence about that something coming to pass, to hope for something. The implication of confidence is with an indication of what is hoped for. What Paul was talking about, uh, an indication of the person or thing on whom or which hope is based, to put one's confidence in someone or something. And the second kind of hope exists in expectation. To look forward to something in view of the measures one takes to ensure fulfillment. To expect a result. This hope is confident because it's based on the expectation that the Lord is present, the Lord is working. This hope is confident because it's based on the expectation that the Lord is never going to leave you or forsake you that the Lord is working in the situation. The source of trust or hope, it's Jesus. How did they receive Christ? Hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. According to Paul, hope in the gospel produces thanksgiving, but it will also produce a desire to do what is right. And this is very critical for us to understand. To receive Christ means you walk in Christ. 
This ties in directly with Colossians 2.6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. They, the receiving directly correlates to the living. They're not separated from one another. How did they receive Christ? Look at chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. In verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul explained reconciliation. He explained reconciliation between God and man by explaining three amazing truths regarding salvation. The position of the sinner, the purpose of the Savior, and the power in salvation. After Paul explained the sinner's position and the purpose of the Savior, he then gave a caveat. Paul pointed out that the evidence of a believer's reconciliation with God is their perseverance, their continuing in the faith. And that means that you continue in the teaching of the one who gave you the faith. You don't claim to be a follower of Christ and then point out in the Bible where you disagree with Christ. You see the connection? It matters. Jesus is the source of our faith. If we are followers of Jesus, we will agree with what Jesus taught. So if you don't agree with what Jesus taught, stop calling yourself a Christian because you're not one. I don't know how else to say that. This is the source of truth, Christ himself, not the philosophy of men. And this was important. Paul exhorted the Colossians to persevere or continue in the faith. He described the power of God in salvation. When a person is moved away from the hope of the gospel, that is a sign that they are not truly reconciled to the Father. However, when God establishes the sinner and grants salvation, the reconciled one will stand firmly or solidly in place. That's what it means to be steadfast, to be steadfast in the Lord. The fact is that putting our confidence in Jesus alone to forgive sins is the only path of reconciliation between a sinner and between God. This is God's work of reconciliation. He makes us right before himself. And God's reconciliation also empowers us to live the way that he desires. Well, how do I do that? You read the Bible and you do what it says, not what you think is better. That's Paul's point. The power in salvation is demonstrated by the saints continuing in the faith, by their perseverance. How did they receive Christ? Look at chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verses 24 through 27 of chapter 1, Paul explained joy in suffering. He explained joy in suffering and how God's revealed mystery in salvation necessitates a gospel ministry. It necessitates it. It's not optional. Part of Paul's insightful explanation of his ministry included his commission. He gave three revelations of the mystery of salvation in verses 25 through 27 as part of his description of his commission. God the Father has illuminated himself in the doctrine of the gospel. The Christ himself has now been exhibited for the whole world to see. The message of salvation has been made available to the entire world. How did they receive Christ? Look at chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
In verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1, Paul clearly described the manner and purpose of proclaiming. The manner of proclaiming is admonishing sin and teaching the doctrine in the Word of God, which is the revealed wisdom in the mind of Christ. The purpose of proclaiming Christ is to rescue God's elect from the domain of darkness, the salvation of the lost because lives depend on it. Paul's point in verse 6 is that the receiving correlates directly to the walking. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Literally, lead your life in Him. And Paul uses an imperative verb here, to walk. This is a command. Oh yes, this is an imperative command. This isn't if you feel like it. To conduct one's life to comport oneself, to behave, to live as a habit of conduct, a habitual pattern of living in your life, the sphere in which one lives or ought to live, so as to be characterized by that sphere. The conduct is designated by the receiving. How did they receive Christ? Look at chapter 1, 9, and 10. For this reason also... Since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God." Really, when we pair these verses with chapter 2, verse 6, we see the same message. This goes more to what they received. It's because of what they received that Paul anchors his appeal to live according to Christ. They received the mystery of Christ. They were qualified to receive the inheritance of the saints by God the Father. They were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love. They received Christ, the full knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Receiving Jesus as Lord, receiving Jesus as the Lord of your life is only the beginning of life with Christ. It's only the beginning. In order to be rooted and built up in the faith by God, You must continue to follow. You must continue to follow His leadership to be strengthened. Christ will always desire to give you guidance and support in the daily adversities of life and the trials of life. The Colossians received the mind of Christ. They were not tricked into believing by a persuasive argument. They received the riches of the glory of the mystery of salvation among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. They receive the full wealth of the full assurance of understanding and to the full knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why would you go anywhere else for, for a, a wisdom and knowledge? No, everything, all the full treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. What other source do we need as believers? Paul talked about the mind of Christ also to the believers in Corinth. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, about six years before his letter to the Colossians, Paul was talking about his reliance on the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his reliance on the Holy Spirit, speaking to the believers in Corinth. This is what Paul said. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, 
the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, Yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 2, the first 16 verses. Very important. In our verse, we see the obvious connection. As you receive the mind of Christ, so act accordingly in your living. The believers in Colossae received Christ himself. And Paul says, so walk in him. Lead your life in him. So how do you lead your life in him? How do you lead your life in him? How can you live for Christ? Well, by devoting your life to him. By devoting your life and submitting your will to him. Make a commitment to Christ. Commit your life to him. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. How can you live for Christ? Well, genuinely desiring and seeking to learn from Him. Genuinely desiring to learn from Him submitting to him, to learn from his life, to learn from his teachings, to apply those teachings, to humbly accept instruction and admonishment from brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the means that God has provided for his people. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. Of course, he'll say that later in the chapter. That's chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. How do you walk in him? By accepting and recognizing the Holy Spirit's power in your life, his presence, his working in you. Christ has sent the helper, the Spirit, to indwell you, not only is the Spirit a seal of the promise of your eternal salvation, but He has been given by Christ to help you in this life. He's, he's helping you to deny sin and enable godly living. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law now those who belong to christ jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also walk in step with the spirit let us not become those with vain glory challenging one another envying one another of course the fruits of the spirit galatians 5 paul will go on he says, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. Paul gives more encouragement to the Colossians. The reason they can walk in him is because they have received him. 
They have been once and for all established by Him. They have been firmly rooted or fixed. They are secure. God has done this. They are being built up. Paul uses a verb to describe the build-up done by Christ as a continuous action that is being done to them. They being built up. Same concept Paul describes in another of the prison epistles in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2.20 Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the one that is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He is what we are secured on, and now he is building on top of that. Christ himself. Christ has given the Holy Spirit to us. And it's the same thing here in our verse. They are being built up in Christ because they have been established by God the Father in or by their faith. And he reinforces his previous statement in verse 6. Just as you were instructed, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Again, Paul's prison epistle to the Ephesians, written around the same time as Colossians, gives us insight into his mindset. Um, It gives us insight into what he was communicating to the various churches that he had planted, really. Paul contrasted unbelievers and believers in the middle or toward the, really the kind of middle toward the end of his letter to the church in Ephesus. In, in Ephesians 4, 19 through 24, we see this statement. And they, referring to unbelievers, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In chapter 2, verse 7 of Colossians, Paul used the illustration of our being rooted in Christ. He often used illustrations of soldiers in battle, athletes in competitions, shepherds, shepherding, uh, gardening, In his plant illustration, he's pointing out that plants draw nourishment from the soil. Plants draw nourishment from the soil. Just as plants draw nourishment from the soil through their roots, so the believer draws life-giving strength from Christ. Paul wanted them to see that the more believers draw strength from the Lord Jesus, the less susceptible they were to deception. The more we draw our strength from Jesus the less we will be deceived by those who falsely claim to have all of life's answers. We will be prepared to discern human deception if our true source of strength is from Jesus. If Christ is our strength, we will be free from human pronouncements or regulations on how to live. With the revealed mind of Christ, you have everything you need to chart the correct course. I want to just send this fly back to eternity. Wait, that, thou shall not kill. Is it murder? God, give me grace. This fly is uh, demonic. It just wants to land on me. All right. But think about that. It's true. What is your source of strength from? Because if it's not from God, if it's not from the Bible, if it's not from Christ, the revealed mind of Christ, then you're susceptible. You'll be, you're going to listen to anything. No, we need to, we need to think about this clearly. With the revealed mind of Christ, you have everything you need to chart the correct course or the path of of, of conduct that the Bible is calling us to live in light of our salvation, right? To live your life as a thank you letter based on the gift of grace that God has so freely bestowed upon us, even even if we're undeserving. Uh, That's how we have to live our lives. As long as the instruction we look to as the only guiding or ruling principle in how to live is Christ himself. And Paul anchors or concludes the sentence by pointing out that this is possible for us with being very plentiful or in abundance of thanksgiving. We can do this with gratefulness. We can have a thankfulness in our heart to receive the true instruction with thanksgiving and a heart of gratitude, not a heart of stone with indifference or ungratefulness. Uh, The Puritan Matthew Henry remarked thus on the idea of thanksgiving, 
uh, from our passage this morning. He said, the stronger our faith and the warmer our love, the more will our comfort be. The treasures of wisdom are hid, not from us, but for us in Christ. They were hid from proud unbelievers, but displayed in the person and redemption of Christ. See the danger of enticing words. How many are ruined by the false disguises and fair appearances of evil principles and wicked practices. Be aware and afraid of those who would entice to any evil, for they aim to spoil you. All Christians have, in profession at least, received Jesus Christ the Lord, consented to him, and taken him for theirs. We cannot be built up in Christ or grow in him unless we are first rooted in him and founded upon him. Being established in the faith, we must abound therein and improve in it more and more. God justly withdraws this benefit from those who do not receive it with thanksgiving and gratitude for his mercies is justly required by God. So if we have received Christ and Paul's calling us to walk in Christ, we should think about Christ, Christ-like attributes. We've read the, the fruits of the Spirit. We should be ones known for being gracious, is it, for being patient, for, for being loving, never compromising the truth. Jesus never conformed or compromised the truth in order to satiate someone's ego. You can't compromise the truth in a, in a willingness to not offend someone. You can't compromise the truth to satiate your own ego. You know, are you living a Christ-like life, right? Gentleness, peace. You think about Jesus Christ, loving kindness, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. I mean, are, we, we say we're Christians. Are we forgiving? Are we gracious? Do you speak the truth no matter the personal cost? Is your desire to see people get saved? That's Christ-like attributes. That's Christ-like living. Walk in him that way. Be loving. Don't ever compromise the truth. A person of integrity doesn't compromise. It's like, what do you mean? That's not loving. No, the person of integrity does not compromise the truth because the truth is the best for the person that you're dealing with. However, we can speak the truth in love with patience and kindness. We, we should be ones who are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, Christ-likeness. That's what Paul is calling us to be. That's the result of true instruction. True instruction versus empty deception. True instruction, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ revealed in the Scriptures are the only guiding and ruling principle on how to live. And in contrast, he now is going to talk about empty deception, the elementary principles of the world in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul starts verse 8 with another command. He says, See to it. See to it. It can mean very simply to perceive with the eye or to take, uh, to have the faculty of sight to be able to see. That's simple, but it's a verb that has about eight different nuances in meaning, depending on the tense of the verb or whether the, the thing is paired with nouns or prepositional phrases. So we can get specific. Paul is using the verb here to give the command be ready to learn about something that is needed or is hazardous. Be ready to learn about something that is needed or is hazardous, to watch out for, to look to, to beware of. And there are two dimensions to the warning in the command. First, that no one takes them captive. Paul uses a very specific Greek word that describes gaining control of by carrying off as spoils of war, to make captive of or to rob. As usual, Paul is using picture illustrations to convey a point. In imagery of carrying someone away from the truth into the slavery of error. He says, don't let anyone put you into a mental prison of false ideas. And that's the, the second dimension to the warning is the, in the command. 
how could someone imprison someone mentally? How would you imprison someone mentally? How could a person take someone uh, prisoner or captive? Well, with philosophy and empty deception. He pairs the word for erroneous teaching with deceitfulness. And just to be clear, he throws a description of the deceitfulness. It's empty. The Greek adjective goes beyond pertaining to being without something material, as in empty. Paul is talking about being devoid of intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. Empty as in no substance. The adjective describing the deception is a figurative extension of things without content, without any basis, without truth, without power. If you have a reference Bible, uh, you may notice the reference in front of the word philosophy takes us to Paul's first letter to the pastor of Ephesus, his ministry partner, Timothy. More than likely, Timothy was around 30 years old at this point. Paul wrote the letter to Timothy some four years later uh, than his prison epistles. Colossians was written in 61 AD during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. The first letter to Timothy was penned in 65 during Paul's fourth missionary journey. Listen to how Paul describes philosophy and deception there. Any teaching not from Christ is ultimately of the devil. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is any teaching that is in opposition to what is taught in the Bible. Uh, in Paul's closing of that letter, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, while some, while professing, have gone astray from the faith. They profess to be followers of Christ. They've gone astray from the faith. Every person that professed to be a Christian is not in the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, we have folks in the pulpit that are pro professing to be followers of Christ and then they stand in the pulpit and they teach things that are in opposition to the Bible. Paul very clearly wrote against any philosophy of life based on solely human ideas and experiences, human ingenuity, or philosophical imaginations. In reality, Paul himself would have been a gifted philosopher in terms of rhetoric and argumentation. The word illustrations he uses are masterful, and his arguments are dripping with reason and logic. The reason is that they are based on the truth, the revealed mind of Christ. He is not necessarily condemning philosophy in terms of reason or logic, which mankind is endowed with as part of being made in the image of God. We are image bearers. In God's common grace, even the unbeliever can reason or think. Paul is not condemning philosophy in terms of rhetoric or free thinking. He's condemning teaches that credits humanity, not Christ. He is condemning the imagination or ingenuity of man that renders observations, assertions, conjecture, or presuppositions of any kind that are in conflict with Christ's teaching from the Word of God. The philosophy Paul is condemning is based on the traditions of men according to the elementary principles of men of the world. True instruction is not based on the content of decrees that have been handed down like tradition of teachings or narratives. True instruction is not based on the elementary principles of this world. The term elementary principles is one word in the Greek. Paul is talking about transcendent powers that are in control over events in this world. Elements, elemental spirits, referring to the elementary forms of religion, Jewish and polytheistic, which have been superseded by the new revelation, Christ. This is what philosophy and deceitfulness is based on, what it's according to. You know what philosophy and deceitfulness is not according to? Philosophy and deceitfulness is not according to Christ. True instruction is based on the revealed mind of Christ in the Scriptures. In verse 8, Paul is condemning philosophical nonsense or man-made systems that claim to be the answer to life's problems. You know where that leads? What, what does that approach to life become? Simply, that approach to life becomes a false religion. 
living under the controlling thumb of a false god that doesn't exist. We live in a world of outright heretics or just men preaching error. False teaching. Well-meaning men teaching error who just need more training and equipping or outright heretics. But this is, this is not addressing faithful men who make mistakes. No, this is false teaching, and what we see around us is what Paul was talking about in his follow-up letter to Timothy, written about two to three years after his first letter. Second uh, Timothy, written shortly before Paul's death during his second imprisonment, around 67, 68. Paul said this in his second letter to Timothy. He said, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Keep away from such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and take captive weak women weighed down with sins, being led on by various desires, always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3. And we see in there a little stab at the Pharisees who would take the property of a widow for themselves. And then they would put the widow out on the street. I mean, just disgusting. And these are the elite religious leaders of the time. Um, Certainly some things to take away there. The fact is that philosophy and man-centered teaching are very prevalent today, just as they were in Paul's time. Even many Christians today look down on biblical instruction while elevating or venerating secular wisdom. The reality is that there are many man-made approaches to life's problems that totally disregard true instruction from God, approaches that are based on human wisdom and not the revealed treasures of wisdom and knowledge, approaches based on the elementary principles of this world, the mind of Christ versus the philosophy of men. So what can we learn from Paul's statements this morning? How can we resist heresy or false teaching in, in error? In order to resist false teaching and error, you must use your mind. You must think. In order to resist false teaching and error, you must keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. In order to resist false teaching and error, you must study God's Word. In order to resist false teaching and error, you must humble yourself to receive admonishment and instruction from other brothers and sisters in Christ who are more mature than you. We all learn from one another. We all grow together. It starts with the pastor. I need your help. We are all Christian brothers and sisters. We have been united in Christ. God has chosen us to come together that we may grow each other, that we may learn from each other, that we may admonish and teach one another for His glory based on the instruction of of his teachings, the teachings of Christ. The contrast of true instruction versus empty deception. True instruction, the, tre- the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ revealed in the scriptures are the only guiding and ruling principle on how to live. An empty deception in contrast to true instru- instruction. Empty deception. The elementary principles of the world are nonsensical, meaningless deceptions that lead people astray from the truth of the Scriptures. And we can maybe think about a few ways that this plays out. Those who have been deceived, even professing uh, Christians. Well, the first thing is intellectual dishonesty. You see that very prevalent in today's society. You'll see political people arguing with each other, and one is making points, and they're bringing up information, and the other person doesn't care. And so when they hear the truth, it's like it was in one ear and out the other. One way this might play out, as you guys may have seen even recently, we can think about science versus politics. So there's a guy named Neil DeGrasse, Neil Tyson DeGrasse, is the big science guy. He just recently came out and said that uh, biology is not sufficient to explain gender. 
So here's the guy who's like this leading voice in science. He's some astrophysicist. He's been on all these podcasts. He's the champion of science, you know, observing things in nature, making hypotheses, empirical observations. And what does he come out and say? Oh, no, no, the, biology isn't sufficient enough to, to deal with gender. So he, it's intellectual dishonesty. He's, his mind is debased to begin with. He's not a Christian, but this is where this philosophical nonsense leads. There's no basis in reality. Uh, that's one example. We can think of, you know, that might be in the unbelieving world. How about for believers? Well, I recently just saw, it was just this weekend, a, a friend of mine from school had posted on his uh, social media platform, um, and it was a pair of pictures, and one of them was a pastor from Saddleback Church, and he was dressed up as Woody from the Toy Story movie. And uh, I think it was like little Bo Peep was on the stage too. I don't know if it was like his worship leader. So he's a pastor. He's on a stage or a platform. He's going to go behind the pulpit. He's going to feed God's people God's word. And he's dressed up in a Halloween costume. There's another one, same church, where the guy's dressed up as Tom Cruise from, uh, or Maverick from Top Gun. He, they're dressed up in, in clothes. They're, they're in a costume. And then next to that, that's one image, and then next to it was a young man who was at some pride event, and it was a drag queen story hour where there's a drag performance in front of children. He's there with his Bible. He was reading the Bible out loud, and he was arrested and put in cuffs and led away from the event. And the bottom of this thing says, which way, Christian man? And it's funny that this, the, the pastor who's dressed up as Woody it wants to make God's message relevant. I want to make God's message relevant and innovative. So how does he make God's message relevant for our times today? He dresses up as a cartoon character in a, in a cartoon that's not even based in reality. And so though, that's what happens. We are, you're going to have to make a choice. There's no sitting on the fence in this one. What do you believe? Are you going to stand for the word of God in your life? Or are you going to dress up as Woody and run around like a fool? We should all be out there with that young kid, with our Bibles out, reaching people, admonishing them, calling them to repentance. And that's where it plays out. Empty deception. They have been deluded by weird philosophy, the elementary principles of this world. And we can even think of our, the gospel connection. Think about the cost of discipleship versus your best life now. Think about this in your own walk with life. How did you receive Christ? We've, we've heard how the Colossians received it. How did you receive Christ? Is Jesus Christ your homeboy? I don't know if you guys remember that one. Jesus is my homeboy. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the universe. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Is he my best friend? Yes, he is. Is he my master? Yes, he is. Is he my brother in Christ? He says that we're going to be his brothers and sisters and receive the same inheritance that he received. That's Jesus. He's not my homeboy. Were you told that when you become a Christian, Jesus is going to answer all of your dreams? He's going to give you everything your heart has ever desired. Jesus is going to make all of your dreams come true. Because that's not the one that I read about. The Jesus I read about says, deny yourself and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. And I'm a cross? What do you mean? Oh, you, you mean I'm going to be crucified if I'm a follower of Christ? Yes. If you pursue godliness in this world, you will be persecuted. You're not going to have all your dreams fulfilled. You're going to have to stand in the world and declare truth. That there is sin in the world and that Jesus is going to come and judge every sinner. Every unbelieving person will be judged and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. They are going to hell. God is a God of wrath and justice. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
That if we look to Him and we turn away from our sin and we believe on the name of Jesus, we will be saved. We will have eternal life. That's the gospel. Literally, it means the good news that God proclaimed to human beings. The plan of salvation, the mystery revealed. How did you receive Christ? For those of you that have received Christ because some preacher, some person told you that Jesus is going to fulfill all your heart's desires and you're going to have all your dreams fulfilled, you've been deceived. You know, John MacArthur said this once in a, in a sermon where he talked about, um, you know, my God would never send anybody to hell because that's unloving. That's unloving. He said, you're right. Your God isn't going to send anybody to hell because your God doesn't exist. He's one that you've made up in your mind. There's only one Lord, and it's what is proclaimed in the Gospels. It's what's proclaimed in the Word of God. Not by philosophy, not by the traditions of men, and not by false teachers who tell you, if you follow Jesus, you're going to live your best life now. Get that nonsense out of here. It's fake. It's false. It's not real. We must look to the Scriptures, period. So getting back to the question we posed this morning by Ken Ham. As we look around at the shambles of Western civilization, a question seems to be on everyone's mind. What happened? This was Ken Ham's conclusion. So start quotation. He says, really the answer is simple, but it's missed by even many in the church. He says, I assert these major reasons for this change. So much of the church and its leadership has compromised God's word in Genesis. Of course, answers in Genesis. He says, thus undermining the authority of the word of God and undermining a Christian worldview. Most church leaders and Christian academics have not taught generations how to develop a truly Christian worldview. Beginning with the foundation of Genesis and the rest of God's word. What happened in our Western civilization is really nothing new. It's the raging spiritual battle that began 6,000 years ago in a garden. A battle between two religions. The devil successfully tempted Eve. And Adam followed her to disobey God's word and be their own gods. To build their thinking on man's word. Thus, the battle between God's word and man's word ensued. The battle is seen all the way through Scripture. Light versus darkness. Good versus evil. For against Christ. Building a house on rock versus building a house on sand. So to answer the question, what happened? The foundation for the dominant worldview of the West was changed. And as a result, the worldview has changed from primarily a very Christianized worldview to a secular or worldly worldview. Can the culture ever reverse direction and change back? He says, of course, that's always a possibility, but only through the power of God's word and the gospel to change lives. So people will be committed to building their thinking on the word of God. He said, God's word and the saving gospel is the ultimate solution to this foundational change. And regardless of whether the culture could reverse direction or not, we need to be about the business of the king until he returns. We don't want to get caught up in a, in a loop here and we're distracted from what we're actually supposed to be doing. He closes and says this, God has entrusted resources to each of us, whether material resources and or talents, writing, speaking, music, etc. We need to do our best to use what God has entrusted to us or entrusted us with to reach as many people as we can with the truth of God's word and the gospel. In today's passage, Paul unapologetically gives a contrast between true instruction versus empty deception so that you can be discerning in what is the source that you're going to live your life by. The mind of Christ versus the philosophy of men. True instruction versus empty deception. True instruction, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ revealed in the scriptures are the only guiding and ruling principle in this life. 
and then empty deception. The elementary principles of the world are nonsensical, meaningless deceptions that lead people astray from the truth of the Word of God found in the Holy Scriptures. Praise God for His Word. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gift of grace. Thank you for freely bestowing uh, your grace upon us. Uh, It's unmerited. We didn't deserve it. Uh, As your word proclaims, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, thank you for this reality. Thank you for uh, our saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of repentance. Thank you for the gift of justification. God, thank you for your promise of future glorification. Uh, May we look to the return of Christ. Uh, May we uh, be waiting eagerly in anticipation. And I pray for every soul here that God, when he comes, he may find us uh, living according to him as we have received him. Uh, In all the wisdom and knowledge uh, revealed in your word, Uh, revealed in Christ himself. God, would you enable us to glorify you with our lives? Would you give us opportunities to minister and share the gospel with the unbelieving, uh, not only in our sphere of influence and our personal lives, but those that live in this community, uh, here in the city of Los Alamitos, here in the city of Long Beach, uh, this community in which you have called us, that you have placed us to live. May we be about the business of the king, and may he find us about his business when he returns. So I pray, God, that you would bring supernatural enablement through the Holy Spirit and that you would glorify yourself with our lives. Uh, For your glory and for the benefit of your people, we pray in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.